In a minute, we're going to turn to Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to see the verse that inspired the name of our series, Jonah, the Gospel of Second Chances. And what we come to terms with today, joyfully, is that there is no failure from which we cannot bounce back. There's no disaster from which we cannot recover. There's no pit that we can fall into or dig for ourselves out of which God cannot raise us. There's no sin for which there is not abounding grace. God is in the business of second chances. And that's why the words of greatest hope in this book are these words. The Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Let's read it. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let them and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Father, as we come to your word, we're so grateful for the lessons we're learning. I'm still struck by that reminder of the Jewish people who read this passage and then declare, we are Jonah, and we are. When our faith is challenged, when we're taken out of our comfort zone, the feebleness of our faith often shows. We want to judge Jonah strongly, but in doing so, we judge ourselves. We are all Jonah, and yet you are relentless in your love for us. You're relentless in your pursuit of us. You chase us down even when we run, and then when we come to our senses and return to you, you bring us back, not only just restoring us to our relationship, but to our purpose. You call us once again into lives for your glory. Father, I pray we will find great hope for ourselves in this story wherever we are today. In Jesus' name, amen. My father grew up going to a small Baptist church in Old Bridge, New Jersey, and when we visited Grandma and Grandpa, we always went to that church. And I remember as I was a teenager, a woman stood up at a youth gathering. She was an older woman, very nice woman, loved the Lord. And she told a story about how she had missed out on God's calling in her life when she was a young woman. 
She felt called to the mission field and chose instead to ignore God's call. She looked at us and she said, kids, don't miss out on God's call for your life. I will always regret that I missed God's call. And when I was a child, that challenged me in a way that I didn't have the wisdom enough to question. I mean, think about this. What she was saying to her own children who were sitting listening to her story was that they weren't part of God's plan, (laughs) that the husband she married wasn't part of God's plan, the Sunday school classes she taught weren't part of God's plan in her life. She had missed God's plan. The rest of her life was ruined. Wow. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? But let's admit it, when we come to follow Christ and then experience failure in our walk with the Lord, fail in our marriages, fail in in our ministries, don't we often think that I'll never again be able to be used by God the way I could have before that failure? And the truth is, that's absolutely right. (laughs) Because when we face our failures and we've experienced God's grace and we are restored, God can use us so much better. That's what Jonah tells us. We're gonna break this chapter down into three things. We're first gonna look at the measure of God's love, and then we're gonna look at a model for repentance as we look at the Ninevites and how they responded to the message. And then from that, we're gonna look at the meaning of God's mercy for us. So let's start by looking at this measure of God's love, and we can see it in these first four verses. First applied to Jonah, and Jonah represents the children of God. What we see is God's love for his children, which is unconditional and unabated. Remember, Scripture says to those of us that have professed our faith in Christ, we have become children of God. We've been reconciled to God, not by any merit of our own. Our our worship today just pointed that out so beautifully. Only the blood of Christ saves us. And the truth is, only the blood of Christ keeps us. You can't earn your salvation. You can't earn keeping your salvation. What we see in Jonah is that incredible grace of God applied so that even though Jonah ran from God, God never abandoned him. Why? Because he was his child. Romans 8 says there isn't a thing in this world that can separate us from the love of God. Paul says even when we're faithless, God's faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his work on the cross that accomplished our redemption. It's what we call persevering grace. Grace that endures. When God calls us his child and applies his blood to us and applies his grace to us, he forgives us of our past, he forgives us of our present, and he forgives us of our future. We see that enduring love for the child of God demonstrated in Jonah. God chased him down, saved him from disaster, and when he turned back to him, he not only freed him from the great fish, but he spoke to him again. Listen again. No matter how much your life's choices or circumstances make you feel like God is given up on you, God has abandoned you, you will never hear his voice again. God is always ready to speak. And we should never fear turning back to him. Never fear it. The second 
way that we see the measure of God's love is towards the Ninevites. And that's God's love applied not to his blood-bought children, those who have been born into his body, his church family, but to the lost, people around us who have yet to find Christ. We see God's love applied to the Ninevites in that he sends Jonah to them. You see, it's God's heart that no one should perish, Scripture says. John 3.16, God so loved the whole world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul says in the book of Romans, how shall they believe unless they are told? How shall they be told unless someone is sent? His heart for the Ninevites is shown in his desire not just to leave them and let them uh, suffer the consequences, but to bring the message. And that brings us to the third thing. God's love is shown in the honesty of his message to the Ninevites. Now, this is what a loving God says to the city of Nineveh. Let's say it together. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. That's God's loving, heartfelt message through Jonah to the Ninevites. How's that work for you? Some picture him coming immediately out of the great fish, bleached white from stomach juices, seaweed still wrapped around his head, walking directly into Nineveh saying, 40 days and the city will be turned over. That's the kind of street evangelism we don't encourage people to do these days. But there's a definite truth here. How is this God's love? I'll explain it to you. God loves the Ninevites enough to tell them the truth about their condition. God loves the lost enough that He doesn't want them to be left ignorant in their sin and their eventual judgment. He's willing to say the hard truth, because without the hard truth, as Paul said last week, without understanding the wrath of God, there's no understanding the kindness and the grace of God. You see, the most loving thing we can do for the people around us is to help them understand their need for forgiveness. There's something else about this message that's interesting. Look at what it says again. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. That word overturned means turned over. What God is saying to Nineveh is, you are going to be turned over to the natural result of the choices you have made of rebellion against me. There's a course that you have set for yourself. Your decisions have brought about this. I'm just simply going to turn you over to it. That's what Romans 1 teaches us about the whole race. That even though the whole race sees enough in creation and in our hearts through God's natural revelation of Himself that we could turn and acknowledge a Creator, instead, all of us have turned and worshiped the creature. For us in modern society, the creature is us. We worship mankind. Paul says, so God turned us over to the natural result of that rebellion. You see, we often see God as punisher, but we bring judgment upon ourselves. All God does is turn us over to it. And as long as we stay in rebellion against Him, it's just a matter of time. 
What God is saying to Nineveh is your time is running short, but the end you're going to experience is going to be your doing, not mine. The fact that it's 40 days from now, that's my doing because I've been gracious. I'm being patient. It's an interesting thought to look at. Let's go on now and look at how the Ninevites respond. And in this, we see this model for repentance. What I want to do is begin reading again at verse 4. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction. So there is a path of repentance that is modeled by the Ninevites that I think reflects the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. And before we get into it, what I want to stress to you is that there is no turning to God without turning from something. Real belief is always accompanied by repentance. They're two sides of the same coin. The Ninevites believed God, but then that belief worked its way into repentance. In the New Testament, Jesus, when he proclaimed the good news, said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then what did he say? Repent and believe the gospel. A turning of faith to God is a turning away from something. That's what baptism symbolizes in the New Testament. That's why we practice baptism by believer's immersion. It's, a, it's intended to symbolize a leaving of the old life behind and an entering into the new life. So the act of faith in Christ as our Savior and Lord is an act of professing Christ, acknowledging belief in Him while leaving our old life behind, and that's repentance. Some might argue and say, well, what about by grace you're saved through faith alone? Exactly. (laughs) All of this is only possible by faith. We see a pattern for that turning from in this, and it's really threefold. And the first element of biblical repentance is awareness. I need to reach the point where I understand what I have done is wrong. We've landed on this a lot, and Jonah reminds us of it again. It's not adequate for you to think that you can come to God and save you from the hurts that other people or the wrong that other people have done in your life. You need saving from yourself. The first prayer of turning to God is the publican in Jesus' parable who said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the first part of repentance is understanding my need for it and awareness that I am the one that's offended God. I need forgiveness for my own sin. The second part is regret. I need to be able to say what I have done hurts myself and God. 
the fasting, the sackcloth, the ashes of the Ninevites, this symbolic expression of sorrow and anguish. We embrace the fact that before God, we are impoverished because of our sin. We admit what it's done to us and what it's also done to God. And the third area is change. I will give up what I know is wrong. I'm turning from it. It could be that you have a recurring issue that you find yourself falling into, a habit of sin that's enslaved you, and you come back to God, ask for forgiveness, and you fall back into it over and over again. Some of us have anger, we lie, we do all sorts of things, and we acknowledge what we're doing before God, and we ask Him for forgiveness. But many of us refuse to change the circumstances in our lives that are part of why we do what we do. Certain things we might own that we know present an opportunity for something in my life that is not honorable. Or maybe I refuse to let go because it means so much to me, and I know it means more to me than it should. It's a little God in my life. There's so many ways you could look at your life and ask if real repentance has occurred. Because repentance is not just acknowledgement. It's a turning from, it's a change, it's a relinquishing, it's a letting go. So what in your life do you need to let go in order to fully embrace God? For some of us, it might actually be a relationship that we're currently involved in that is not honoring God. Or at least we need to change the terms of that relationship in such a way that it's not pulling us in an opposite direction. You see, it can't just be an intellectual practice. It has to move to a point where we're willing to make changes in our life if we're serious about pursuing God. I don't know what that means for you, but I know all of us have things that God wants us to let go of. That's what repentance requires. And then we go on and we see this third area. When we honestly repent, we can experience God's mercy and we understand the meaning of it when we look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and He did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. Just a few things about God's mercy that we see in this story. The first is, mercy is always God's response to true repentance. Mercy is always God's response to true repentance. You can count on that because that is God's nature. What he considers most glorious about himself is his mercy, his grace, and his willingness to forgive. You can count on this. An honest, repentant heart will always find God's mercy. The second thing that we see in this story is that I'm going to explain this. God's mercy is a limited time offer. Now, I talked about two different ways that God demonstrates his love. One is towards his children, and the other is towards those who have not come to him and who are lost still in their sin. And this particular part of God's mercy applies to the latter. There is a limited time in this story that the Ninevites have to return to God. God has been patient for a long time. He's been long-suffering, but there is definitely a window where the opportunity closes. Now, I'm trying to unsettle you. I'm trying to get you to realize that you can't just be delaying and delaying making things right with God. 
thing. I've got my whole life to get my act together. I'll, I'll wallow in this thing that I'm doing a little longer. I can get right with God later. I don't know how this principle works, but what I can tell you is none of us knows the hour of the day the Lord will return. None of us knows the length of our lives. Don's son was driving down to uh, family in Connecticut, and they had an accident, and Mike was outside the car taking pictures, and he was hit by another car, broke both his legs, and he's doing much better after several days of uh, intensive care and surgery, and it's a great relief for all of us. But when I heard about that, I thought to myself, man, we just don't know. God's grace, thank God that Mike's still with us, but none of us know God's timing for our life. We just don't know when we'll stand before him and we'll be called to give response. See, there is a limited window. Jesus speaks about the wealthy man who said, I've, I've got much, I'll build bigger barns, I'll, I'll enjoy my life. And God said to him, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. So God is always willing to give mercy, and it's always his response to repentance in our lives, but we should not play games with his mercy. It is, after all, the God of all of creation who extends that mercy towards us, and he is in control of our coming and our going, of our rising and our falling. And the third thing about God's mercy is that we never need to fear returning to God. As sobering as it is to constantly be hitting in the book of Jonah this reality of the wrath of God and the judgment of God and, and the impact of sin and to watch that impact in Jonah's life and, and the fear of God's judgment in the hearts of the Ninevites. As, as sobering as that is, as startling as it is to come to terms with God who is holy and just and deals with sin, it's that God who loves us enough that he offers us a path to him. And it's the one path you should never fear taking. It's the only path you shouldn't fear taking. If right now you're following a path of secret sin or a life of disobedience, if you're involved in something right now that you know is not what's meant for a child of God, that's the path you should fear. The only path you should never fear is coming back to God because He's always willing, always willing to forgive. And sometimes that's so hard for us to embrace because we've been like Jonah. We've been through it. <laughs> it's been rough. We've experienced the hand of God's chastisement and God's discipline. And sometimes when you experience the hand of discipline, it's hard to turn back to that hand and recognize it's the hand of hope and forgiveness. There's this interesting passage in, in Hosea. This is uh, the prophet Hosea speaking to the children of Israel. Let's say it together. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will hear us. He has injured us, but he will bind our wounds. Let us acknowledge the Lord. As sure as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the spring rains that water the earth. What a fascinating statement. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us 
apart. And now he will bind and he will heal. It's hard to embrace the fact that the very God that turns us over to our sinful rebellion and lets us experience that as his act of discipline in our lives. It's hard to understand that that God always looks at us in love and is always acting in love towards us. In other words, when God tears us apart, God's loving us. When he embraces us and binds our wounds, God's loving us. And that brings us back to that thing we learned when we looked at Jacob wrestling with God. And we were going through the Old Testament stories and we, we saw how Jacob left crippled for the rest of his life, marked by that encounter. And I don't know if you remember it, but the lesson we learned there is that sometimes we feel like God's fighting against us. But then when we've made it through, what we realize is all the time, all the time, he was fighting for us. Fighting for us. Wounding us so that we can understand the depth of our sin. And just as ready to bind those wounds with his grace and mercy. <laughs> this is the God who calls us. This is the God who loves us. This is the God who's relentless about transforming our lives and will not let go. And ultimately what we learn is that there's no failure from which, with God's help, we can't bounce back. There's no disaster from which we can't recover. There's no pit that we can fall into or dig for ourselves out of which that God can't raise us. There's no sin for which there is not abundant grace. Let's pray together. <sighs> Father, sometimes we're meant to be unsettled. We're meant to be left without everything buttoned up nicely and wrapped up nicely. Because there is a mystery in our faith. There's a mystery in this journey. And I have to admit, I feel that way today. And I'm the one who preached. I see this pattern that you work in our lives, that you, you inflict and allow the wounds to come into our lives that break us from our sin and that bring us to the point where we're willing to turn back to you. But then as quickly, when we turn back to you, you bring healing and whether we understand it or not, in all of those things, you're always acting in love. You're always acting for the good. And then when we're ready, you'll speak to us again. You'll call us into life. You'll call us into your purpose. And Father, I don't know where each person in this room is, but I just can't imagine in a room this size that there aren't those who need to take that path of repentance back to you. And for some reason or other, they're avoiding it. They're afraid of it. Maybe they're not willing to let go yet. And I pray, Father, they would see the path in front of them on the course that they're on, and they would turn back to you. And in turning back to you, they will find you ready and eager to forgive, like the father of the prodigal standing, and he saw the son coming from afar and picking up his, 
his garment and uh, shamelessly running in joy to welcome that child home. Thank you, Father, that you always give mercy to the repentant heart, and we should never fear turning to you. And so, uh, in Jesus, we embrace that grace. Amen.